look, trade is important. I'm talking on a podcast for the Adam Smith Institute. So I absolutely agree with you guys about the benefits of free international trade. Um, but that also is only part of what makes a successful economy. Um, and I think that there are all of these other debates that just have kind of ended up getting sidelined or even have regressed a little bit. Uh, and it's all been covered over by this obsession with trade deals that I think are not going to work the kind of miracles that their advocates seem to be hoping for. Welcome to the Pim Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and Joseph C. Sternberg, the editorial page editor and the political economics columnist for the Wall Street Journal's European edition. Welcome, Joseph. Uh, we're hearing you loud and clear from one end of Clapham to another end of Clapham. Um, I think, thankfully, Daniel's uh, coming from us from a different part of uh, South London. It's, it's good to have you on. Well, it's uh, great to, to be here, and I'm glad that uh, with Daniel's participation, we have a little bit of geographic diversity here. Yep, I'm all the way overseas, basically, in Essex at the moment, actually. So a different county. We've got a, a real range of representation here. Well, thankfully, at least we've got a, a good diversity of uh, backgrounds between Australian, a Brit, and, and an American um, today, we're going to be discussing the US election, the chances of a Brexit deal, and the future of monetary policy. We're less than a week away from Election Day in what feels like a never-ending saga of American politics. Uh, the polls and the models are all pointing towards a thumping Biden victory. Uh, but the first question that comes to mind is, are we being too confident? So, Joseph, I'm going to go to you first as our resident American guest, does Trump have a path to victory? And what could that be? What what could be the upset we see uh, next week? Okay, well, I mean, so look, I, it, there's a lot going for the conventional wisdom. I mean, I'm usually a contrarian about a lot of things. But I mean, in this instance, I think the base case does have to be that Biden is going to win. And I think the reason is that uh, the COVID pandemic is still a major issue. That is not something where people have responded well to uh, what you could generously describe as Trump's leadership style um, you know, over the past nine or 10 months. Um, that's creating a lot of economic unease, which is generally not good for an incumbent. Um, you know, Trump's personality is as polarizing in general as, as ever. You have a lot of motivated Democratic voters who think that they made a big mistake by not bothering to turn out for Hillary four years ago and are not going to repeat that error this time. So, you know, I think, again, there's a good reason to think that Biden is going to win. But, you know, there is this needle that Trump can thread, and it is like threading a needle and that it's a very narrow path he has to navigate, but it's possible. Um, I think that part of that story uh, has to assume that we're still seeing a lot of polling error, that the uh, polls are not accurately reflecting the composition of the electorate that we're actually going to see once the votes are counted a week from now. Um, you know, this was a, a big problem four years ago. One of the reasons that people didn't see Trump winning is that the weighting that the poll, uh, all of the pollsters applied had not correctly understood who was going to show up. And there were a lot of voters they had trouble reaching. Um, you know, Biden has made some 
gaffes that are going to hurt him in important states, like his uh, statement in the debate uh, last week about wanting to get rid of the oil industry is not helpful in a swing state like Pennsylvania that has a lot of shale gas. Um, and, you know, just who knows what a week is a long time between here and Election Day. It's true a lot of Americans have already voted early. Those are people who were already going to vote anyway and knew who they would vote for. I think that we don't know what will happen when that final tranche of potentially undecided voters actually shows up a week from now. Mm. There's this fascinating phenomenon where we're saying, if you kind of break it down by the demographics, that Trump is doing actually much better than 2016 amongst Hispanics, amongst black voters, but he's ironically doing much worse amongst white voters, including white working class voters, uh, that he so well did in last election. And that's quite important because they make up like 70% of the electorate. There is one question, though, that I think is quite interesting about whether or not, uh, to some extent, this is how they did relatively well in in the midterm uh, congressional elections is, you know, the middle class women in the suburbs who traditionally were Republican. And then the question becomes, will they do as they're, they're currently predicted to do by the pollsters and actually walk in on election day and actually vote for a Democrat, even though they are Republicans? Or we get that same kind of phenomenon we got in, in 2016, where it really looked like Hillary is ahead, but all these kind of traditional Republicans kind of came back home at the end just because they couldn't bring themselves to voting Democrat. Is that potentially the best case for a, a Trump victory? That There's all these people out there, you know, they're kind of floating with Biden, but they'll come home in the end. Yeah, I mean, that, that is kind of my sense of what's going on here. I mean, what's interesting about this election, uh, you know, compared to previous years is that you don't have a lot of people who are self-identifying as undecided uh, when the pollster calls them up, um, which, again, is kind of unusual because you tend to have these relatively large slivers of the electorate in American elections who will make up their minds relatively close to election day. Um, and that hasn't been true here, I think, partly because Trump has done us the favor over the past four years of not at all concealing who he is or what he's about. Um, so there, and, and Biden has been in public life for nearly half a century. So there is no mystery about these candidates. Um, I think that there are probably a, a non-trivial number of hidden undecided voters out there who are conservatives who are currently saying that they will vote for Biden and probably right now believe that they will vote for Biden because they don't like Trump's personality, but they can be induced to come back to Trump. I mean, some of them will get into the voting booth and just won't be able to bring themselves to vote for a Democrat for the first time because there will be a certain tribal loyalty there. Um, others of them will think, well, hang on a sec, I'm actually now more nervous about Biden's energy policies or about some of this urban unrest like has just broken out overnight in Philadelphia as we're you know, having this conversation today. Um, and we'll have second thoughts about whether they really want to take the plunge and vote for the Democrat for the first time in their you know, voting lives in this election. Um, and, but we don't know how many of those voters there are, and we don't know how likely they are to come home to Trump versus how set they are in their decision to vote for Biden no matter what. Um, I mean, in general, I think that this is kind of a difficult election to poll because um, 
your traditional way of weighting the electorate probably doesn't work very well if you have a lot of movement between the parties and different demographics that we hadn't seen for a while. Um, and when you do have some of these phenomena of people who might genuinely believe when you ask them that they will vote one way, then they'll change their mind right at the end. So, so Daniel, is there a risk, though, on the other hand, that we're potentially analyzing the last war, that we're kind of looking at 2016 and saying, well, we got the analysis wrong then, um, perhaps we're getting it, the, the analysis wrong again, when in fact, it's it's in fact more like the 2019 general election in the UK, where throughout the campaign, everyone was saying, you know, Labour could still win, even though the polls were quite consistently saying the Tories were ahead. And in the end, the Tories won the election. It was no actual great shocker of an election result. Yeah, I, I certainly agree that the base case here has to be for Biden just based on all the polling that we've seen um, on various analyst predictions. And it's looking not just likely, but very likely. Uh, but one of the points that, that Joe made I thought was really interesting is about this kind of hidden undecideds that might not be captured in your traditional polling. I mean, if you look at voter registration battles, Trump is winning those in against Biden in some of the key states that do form his path to victory. So, I mean, Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, they're all toss-ups. Um, and Trump's campaign team are doing quite well with voter registration there. Obviously, it's not just those. He needs um, the Midwest states that helped him secure the White House in 2016 as well with things like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, etc. Um, and currently, Biden seems to hold an advantage in those sort of states. But again, like Joe said, if you have Biden talking about the need to effectively abolish the oil industry, that's not going to make his job very easy in Pennsylvania. And it might be an avenue where Trump could see a path to victory. But I certainly agree with, um, with I think, both of you in that we have to think that a Biden victory is the most likely outcome. Well, if I can just jump in here to observe also, because, you know, the UK is an interesting contrast to this, because there I think that the pollsters here really did learn a lesson after Brexit and some of their failures in those earlier elections, um, so that by the time we got to 2019, they had, uh, you know, we're, we're in a position where they could produce more accurate polling results as you headed into something like the 2019 general election. But you know, people need to remember U.S. elections, presidential elections, are very, very difficult to poll insofar as they can hinge on very small numbers of voters. I mean, uh, you know, Hillary lost because of several tens of thousands of votes in three states, uh, really in just a handful of counties. So you can have a situation in the U.S. where a pollster has learned their lesson and they're getting all of the weights correct um, across the country as a whole. And yet something goes haywire in two or three of these counties in two or three swing states. And that's enough to change the result. Yeah. Although I would suspect it's only enough to change the result if the result is fundamentally close enough to begin with. So if the rest of those weights are more or less on track uh, and as they are producing a huge Biden victory, it shouldn't um, have a, a huge impact in terms of result. It might mean the result is a bit closer than, uh, you know, the, the, the Biden um, rampage that is currently being predicted by the polls. But overall, and I think the number one issue uh, is education. That was quite consistently the, the issue in terms of polling, uh, in terms of the leave vote, in terms of uh, the Australian election um, last year, same issue. They under-polled um, people without university degrees who tend to be more right leading in their votes. And I think that's more or less what happened in the US in 2016, this, this oversampling of higher educated people who who tend to vote to left of politics. 
and not enough sampling of, of working class people. That's a though, if they've sorted out those overall issues, it would make me kind of lean again to, to the fact that, that the polls probably are right and we probably are walking into a binary victory. But I just want to go into what that means, at least in a few elements. So last week, we kind of had a bit of a discussion about what it could potentially mean uh, for the central right and for the conservative movement. I think we'll be coming back to this. But one interested, uh, one point I'm interested in is this particular question over, and this is debate over whether or not a Biden victory would mean for the the kind of woke side of the debate. So I guess this is, I suppose there's two theses going around here on this particular question. There's one that says that uh, basically the left has gone so crazy that you actually can't vote for a Democrat anymore. So that's something like Ben Shapiro or James Lindsay, um, two people who voted, uh, sorry, refused to vote for Trump in 2016, but have now said they're voting for him in 2020 because the left has gone crazy. And then there's a question of, does Biden turn up the temperature um, on the on the wokeness uh, on the left, or does he actually turn down the temperature because um, potentially he um, diffuses the kind of anger around Trump? Uh, Joe, what's what's your take on that? I think that the temperature on a lot of the wokeness probably amps up uh, if Biden wins, because the problem is that that will tend to reinforce the sense on the progressive left that what they've been doing the past four years has worked. See, I, I think that the argument that you hear that a Biden victory would uh, dial things down is this notion that if Trump isn't there anymore, you don't have this irritant that has created this enormous counter reaction. And so people will be able to settle down a little bit and their faith in democracy will have been restored and yada, yada, yada. You can sort of go on down the the list. But what I think is more likely to happen is that that uh, camp is going to feel empowered. And this will be particularly true if Democrats also were to win the Senate in a scenario where, um, you know, Biden wins the presidency. Uh, Democrats are pretty clearly going to retain control of the House of Representatives. And then if they also manage to flip the Senate, um, you know, so that they control all of the Congress and the White House, and they have carte blanche to push forward with their legislative agenda, there's nothing stopping these people. And you know, I think there has been a hope on the part of some moderates that because Biden himself is a moderate, he would personally be a restraining force. But I'm not sure that he would be um, you know, strong enough politically in that scenario to actually push back um, against a lot of this stuff. Um, and in fact, you would have this pent up demand there uh, on the left to kind of continue pursuing some of this woke agenda. So I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic on, on that score. I think that probably a Biden victory would create at least as many problems as it, it might solve, if not create more. So I think that force is definitely there. The fact that this would embolden some more radical elements of the progressive left that actually, yeah, their agenda is popular and working and that Biden might not be as much for a restraining force on that as some moderates hope for. On the other side, you've got the force that, well, the left won't have Trump as a a kind of boogeyman anymore. Uh, And I think that shouldn't be understated as an influence on on how the Democratic Party acts. You're going to see the GOP, especially if there's a, a kind of landslide Uh, Biden victory, you're going to see them begin to do a lot of soul searching. um, And hopefully, and I think it's a reasonable expectation, move away from some of the more uh, populist, uh, protectionist, conservative views that have characterized the Trump era. 
Uh, and I think in the process of that, they're going to not be as much of a, a kind of cultural boogeyman to the left um, as they were during the Trump administration. And with that, there's kind of a bit less of an impetus for for pushing forward with some of the more uh, radical stuff from the progressive left. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, a, a big part of that really is going to boil down to where you think this all began, kind of what the origin of this wokeness phenomenon was. And I think that you're absolutely right if you think that uh, Trump has been the main trigger for this. And what we've seen over the past few years has been primarily a response to, uh, you know, having Trump in office. Uh, And certainly if that's true, getting rid of him solves that problem and then they have nothing to joust again against. But, you know, I think that there's another theory, which I do find kind of persuasive, that this didn't start with Trump. And in a weird way, I think that Trump has proven to be very distracting from some of these longer term trends that have been happening on the progressive left in America in terms of their attitude toward America as a country and toward its uh, kind of the founding ideals or, or America's sense of itself, which used to be kind of this you know, bipartisan organizing principle of our politics and our society. And there's always been an element of progressive rebellion against that, which started long before Trump. And, you know, in this view, you could argue that Trump has been kind of a distraction because him coming along has made it seem like this uh, you know, school of thought on the left was responding to him when actually we're just seeing a continuing blossoming of a lot of these intellectual and cultural trends that had started long before. Um, and so I, I would think that if you think that what we've been witnessing is a longer term process, um, then unfortunately I'm, I'm not in a particularly optimistic camp about what happens to, to that strand of politics if Biden wins. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely something that about that particular kind of extremity that's there to stay. It has been festering for a long time, even outside of the political realm. I think what Trump did to some extent, though, is he legitimized some of the more extreme parts of the, let's say, the Antifa uh, movement that became a kind of very much in response to Trump and, and all his evils. I think it, it'd be much harder to sustain the kind of level of anger and level of protest without Trump as president. But of course, I could bring up that. I think some of the underlying cultural phenomenon it doesn't go away. I think another part of it as well is in, in some ways, a Biden victory is actually a rejection, particularly the Democratic Party, of some of the worst elements of the far left. The fact that uh, Biden defeated Sanders and, and co uh, in the primaries and then actually went on to win the general election kind of shows that uh, a relatively more moderate form of politics, although Biden is uh, relatively to the left for a Democrat presidential candidate, he's relatively to the right for the current state of Democratic Party, um, means that it doesn't necessarily legitimize the AOC worldview, even if it might give them a bit of energy to push forward their policies. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's not exactly a scientific way of doing things, but a, a quick trawl through uh, the areas of Twitter where people tend to have hammer and sickles in their bios will suggest that actually Biden is a, a neoliberal and in some ways just as bad as Trump uh, in yeah, upholding they, they hate the Biden, American they, yeah. fascist police state. So yeah, like there, there's definitely a sense in which this is a rejection of of that from the Democratic Party. And I think that you know, you have to remember all of these people 
probably would have got on board if there had been a, a more radical democratic candidate, even though um, by their standards, they wouldn't have been the kind of standard bearer for the radical left agenda, even someone like Bernie Sanders, for example. But the fact that they didn't win the nomination and the fact that Biden is looking to secure electoral success in the near future, I think that does represent a rejection of some elements of that party. Just before we move on, I want to get everyone's thoughts on this story that's floating around particularly came up in the Observer on Sunday that the UK government is not prepared for a Biden victory, which on the face of it seems hilarious since I presume uh, number 10 can read the polls just as well as anyone else. But I suppose it kind of raises the broader question, uh, will a Biden America be less friendly to the UK than a Trump America and be more difficult uh, diplomatically to deal with than, than Trump? Joe, what's your kind of thoughts on that at the moment? Well, I mean, it's an interesting one because, um, I mean, a broader phenomenon that I've observed, particularly in the past few years in the Trump era, is that you've sort of seen the emergence of some of these bipartisan consensuses in uh, Washington. What's the plural of consensus? Consensi? Um, (laughs) Washington on a lot of these issues. So, for example, I think that you... You know, taking a somewhat broader view, I think that you know something like the Iran nuclear deal that Trump pulled out of it, was, it never had bipartisan support, um, even under Obama in, in Washington, which is why Obama never sent it to the Senate for approval. Um, you know, it does not have bipartisan support now. It will not in the future. Uh, on a lot of the Russia stuff, um, you know, I think there's been a, a bipartisan hardening of the approach to Russia over the past few years. Uh, even some of the, the NATO alliance stuff, I mean, it was really Obama who started beating the drum for wanting European partners to, you know, devote more resources to defense spending. Um, that wasn't a Trump innovation. And so you start then looking at a particular case like the special relationship with the UK. And I think that from an American perspective, that special relationship has always been very deeply ingrained uh, in Washington. Um, And I think that it's kind of a bipartisan thing. It's it's sort of part of the way that America thinks about itself and its role in the world is is sort of having that bridge with uh, the UK. Um, I think you you can end up with some of these particular issues. Like my sense is that one of the reasons that... um, you know, Biden has suggested that he might be wary of a U.S.-U.K. trade deal would have to do with the Northern Ireland issue. And this is all bound up with some of the you know, regional politics go, you know, going back to the, the Irish Americans. Yeah. For, you know, they've been going for many decades. But in an interesting way, that's a sign of how old Biden is, because I'm not sure how much that kind of issue resonates uh, among a lot of younger people within the Democratic Party anymore, even necessarily among a lot of younger Irish Americans. Um, So, you know, I I think that you would probably see some change in in the margins, but I'm not sure sort of in in terms of the the broader way that Americans think about the UK and our relationship with um, the UK, I'm not sure that I would necessarily see that changing a whole bunch, no matter who ends up winning. Yeah, so I think that the idea that Downing Street is not prepared for a Biden victory is definitely an exaggeration. Um, There's, as Joe said, going to be some changes on the margins. Um, I mean, trade is the kind of the key example here, the prospects for a UK-US free trade deal. And 
both parties are working on a very tight deadline. Um, the US law governing the ratification of trade agreements expires uh, mid-2021, and Biden's only going to enter office um, a few months before that agreement would have to be signed. And there would presumably need to be some changes based on Biden's particular emphasis on things like workers' rights protections, um, on the environmental side of things. Uh, but equally, if you look, say, for example, at um, interest in environmental issues, someone like Biden probably sees these more eye to eye with Downing Street and with the, the current UK government than Trump does. Uh, and they have more agreement on things like NATO, for example. Um, so there's going to be some changes. But I, I would say the only real scenario in which we would realistically uh, not be prepared for, it was highlighted by a friend of the podcast, Stephen Bush, in a recent New Statesman piece, is where Biden secures a close win and Trump refuses to accept it. I think that would kind of put the cat among the pigeons a little more. But under most realistic scenarios, we're not going to see any huge challenges for the UK. It really is the, the trade deal and officials needing to sweeten that or, or Bidenify it in order to get that through. Well, let's hope more than anything else for a clear result, because I think that's going to drive us crazy, if not. Um, I might just move on, though, to the UK's other big uh, foreign relationship that needs to be addressed. Uh, the UK and the EU have begun negotiating the text of a trade deal, but there remains unresolved issues. Reports suggest negotiators are close to finding a compromise on state aid and dispute resolution, but French President Emmanuel Macron is refusing to budge on fisheries. Uh, where do we put at the moment the risk of a no deal, Joseph? Oh, gosh. I mean, if I knew that, uh, someone would be paying me a lot more to do it. Rob. I mean, it's one of those situations where I think that there are strong incentives for both sides to do a deal, and it isn't always clear to me exactly how far apart they really are in practice, um, you know, and then how much of this is a certain amount of political showmanship that you have to go through to prove to your domestic constituencies that you really fought really, really hard to get the best possible deal before you sign on the dotted line at the last possible moment. Um, so, I mean, the, the bigger picture, though, is that I don't know about you guys, but I increasingly just find the whole Brexit negotiations, um, you know, by turns quaint and boring. Uh, <laughs> because, I, I mean, gosh, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, which is like destroying economies across the developed world and wreaking all kinds of havoc on public finances. Um, you know, we have these major domestic adjustments that are going to be going on and these big political movements that so many of these Western countries are still trying to digest in one form or another, you know, whether it's support for Trump or, or whether it's still continuing to digest the implications of the Brexit vote or the yellow vests in, in France. Um, I, I mean, there's part of me that increasingly feels like against all of that, uh, Brexit feels like small beer. I mean, I almost think that the most important things that are going to happen uh, on either side of the English Channel over the next few years are going to be domestic. It's going to be a lot of this domestic reform picture. So, I mean, it's nice if you have a trade deal that uh, you know alleviates some of the tariffs and that sort of thing. But I think that uh, I'm not entirely convinced that that's really where all of the action is going to be. 
We might just circle back around to in a second to where the UK's policy setting should be after Brexit and, I guess, post-coronavirus. I'm interested uh, in this idea that kind of floats around a little bit that, well, it doesn't really matter if the UK doesn't have a deal with the EU because hasn't coronavirus shown that the supply chains are resilient enough? Now, I'm personally quite sceptical of that on the basis that uh, the reason why uh, you can argue this, even though I'm not someone who's particularly Ramona in my disposition. One of the key reasons why the UK supply chains have been quite resilient, why the supermarket shelves were restocked was because of open free trade, including with our European partners. And the, the kind of supply chain interruption that could happen as a result of Brexit is actually not comparable to the uh, temporary increase in demand. It's actually a supply side limit in terms of uh, the key questions like, are companies ready to do the paperwork necessary? Even in the case of a deal, the, the future kind of paperwork you can need to to cross the border, to cross the channel and in order to keep the trade flowing, or are there going to be huge delays in that that kind of filters through the rest of the economy? And I'm pretty confident in the case of a deal that we can sort through those issues. But I do worry that we can be overconfident, particularly in the case of a no deal, that everything will just be fine. I think it, it could actually be quite disruptive and combined with the effect of coronavirus could be quite economically damaging and that therefore the ideal would be a deal and, and having a trade deal with your closest um, economic block is probably a good idea, isn't it, Daniel? Yeah, and I think even if you did believe that supply chains could be resilient in the face of the, the double threat of coronavirus and a no deal, they might be resilient in the short term and our supermarket shelves might be stocked with toilet paper and all sorts of other essentials. But I don't think that's really the measure of success here. You've got the kind of hit to long-term prosperity that is is likely to be risked by no deal. And it's not just these kind of short-term supply chain interruptions that are the issue. On, on the negotiations themselves, uh, I mean, the, the latest news that we have is that um, on the kind of small beer side of the details that France's refusal to budge on things like fishing rights might be overridden by, uh, by Merkel. But to be honest, I, I agree with Joe in that a lot of the details of these negotiations, they, they do feel like small fry. I Personally, at least, I think it's madness that something like fishing is such an important part of the national conversation at the time of this pandemic and in these negotiations, especially when it's you know 0.12% of our GDP. That's not to denigrate people who work in the fishing industry. I think, obviously, it's, a, it's an important part of the UK economy, but we've got our priorities all wrong here. We should be trying to go for a deal in order to ensure against the worst potential scenarios relating to uh, coronavirus and no deal. Uh, another factor, we talked about it a little bit in our previous section, influencing the chances of a no deal is the US election results. Uh, if Boris can secure a quick US trade deal, which I think is more likely if Trump was returned to the White House, it would, at least politically speaking, take some of the bite out of a no deal if you have the shiny new US-UK free trade deal to kind of bolster the narrative of a, a global Britain outside the EU. I think that's probably an important point there as well about the sense in which the extent to which the current trade negotiations are actually just not that much of a, a fundamental conflict. Like It feels like everything they're currently still contested, be it state aid or dispute resolution or fisheries, it is possible to compromise. It's it's not all or nothing. It is possible for the UK to sacrifice some of its fisheries and for the EU to sacrifice some of its access to the, the UK's um, traditional fishing rights and, and therefore get a deal. Um, I suppose then going back to what Joe, you said, is the bigger question is um, 
what opportunities should the UK grasp from Brexit, deal or no deal, whatever it may be specifically? Um, what are the opportunities we should be grasping? How should the UK be trying to frame itself as a, as a global player? And, and then more importantly, I suppose, in, in the short to medium term, recovering from coronavirus, what are the kind of policies that could make recovery as speedy and um, with the least possible level of pain as possible? Well, I mean, I've always thought that the big opportunities here actually have to do with domestic reform instead of trade policy. I mean, I if I had been able to vote in the uh, Brexit referendum, I probably would have um, you know, just gone ahead and voted for Remain on the theory that, I mean, Britain always had a lot of opportunity within its own hands to um, you know, shape its economic future. And so, I mean, the sort of things that I would be thinking about would be, you know, pushing ahead with stuff like tax reform. I mean, uh, you know, David Cameron and George Osborne were you know, pretty successful at pulling down the headline corporate uh, profits tax rate, but you can do a lot of stuff in there that would make the UK very competitive in terms of the treatment of capital investment that would, you know, really turbocharge the domestic economy. There's still a lot of progress that they could be making on the regulatory front um, here to unleash the UK economy. And I think that that would make uh, Britain in general a more attractive uh, you know, location for you know, investment, you know, both domestic investment and foreign investment, regardless of the specifics of the trading relationships. I mean, part of me thinks that, again, I, you know, we were just talking a minute ago about all of the small beer that's involved in these trade negotiations. And a big part of me thinks that, I mean, if, if, if the thing that you're arguing about that you think is going to be make or break has to do with the precise regulation of state subsidy rules or fisheries, uh, you've already lost. You're not thinking <laughs> enough. Um, and I think that's the, the big opportunity. One of the things I found perplexing about the Brexit debate here, and I think that um, you know the pro-Brexit camp is unfortunately very guilty of this, is that they tend to frame this issue in terms of trade deals. And I mean, look, trade is important. I'm talking on a podcast for the Adam Smith Institute, so I absolutely agree with you guys about the benefits of free international trade. Um, but that also is only part of what makes a successful economy. Um, and I think that there are all of these other debates that just have kind of ended up getting sidelined or even have regressed a little bit. Uh, and it's all been covered over by this obsession with trade deals that I think are not going to work the kind of miracles that their advocates seem to be hoping for. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pro-trade as well, and I'd probably lose my job if I wasn't. But I, I think sure. we, we have to... Um, I mean, you always have to acknowledge the extent to which you can't put all, all your apples in one basket and, and domestic policy reform. I mean, something we're really focused on the moment is, is housing and planning reform that just has a huge impact on people's mobility around the country um, and their ability to access good, um, high-paying, highly productive jobs. And I think there's just a broader debate we need to be having. Okay, so we, we can no longer blame the EU for the kind of regulatory state that Britain has. Um what can we do to actually reform and fix that now we've, now we've left? And it doesn't seem like the government, even though it's a vote leave government, has a particularly clear plan when it comes to what they're going to do about red tape and regulation that is going to not only make the UK prosperous 
or lacking in prosperity after Brexit, but also has a really big deal in terms of ability to adapt to the, the kind of fundamental economic changes brought by coronavirus, uh, let alone tax reform as well. Um, our friends at the CPS had a really great report out this week on revenue neutral tax reform. Um, it is revenue neutral, but it would still be quite controversial to put forward a lot of these, these changes. And it's a question of what is this government for and where is their ambition? So I think there's there's two real angles here in terms of what we can do to make the most of post-Brexit Britain. Um, the first is the kind of point that, well, there's a lot of stuff that we should be doing anyway that isn't really contingent on Brexit at all. And it might just be that Brexit provides the the kind of narrative and political background in order to start making some of those changes. So we've already mentioned housing as one of our key issues, um, as well as pro-growth tax reform, much of which could be done um, regardless of our, our membership of the European Union. But there are definitely areas, um, I'm thinking things like agriculture, um, antitrust laws, where the EU has been uh, an actively illiberal and pernicious influence on UK domestic policy, especially when it comes to things like antitrust. Um, I worry that the UK, at least at the moment domestically, doesn't really have the, the appetite to kind of embrace more competition in, say, the digital sector, for example, um, that it was previously prevented from doing by the EU, but it would be great if we were able to take advantage of this opportunity and say, step away from efforts towards harmonizing uh, digital services tax, for example, um, which, you know, will obviously screw over anyone ordering uh, off Amazon to get through the current lockdown restrictions. Um, so there's plenty of things that, that we can do that, that have been influenced by the EU that, that we could be freed up to change now. But I do think we have to remember that an awful lot of the things that we'd like to see in a post-Brexit Britain uh, are just things that we'd like to see in general. Well, I mean, what's interesting about this also, and this kind of plays into this bigger discussion we started with about the trade deals, is the extent to which, I mean, it is true that uh, you know, European regulation has often not been very helpful to the UK economy, and yet some of the most unhelpful parts are the things that the UK now seems to be clinging on to, even at the expense of potential trade deals. So, I mean, as an American, uh, my interest is always most intense in the prospect of a UK-US trade deal. I mean, what are the issues there? I mean, it's the same kind of agricultural and food safety. The NHS, isn't it just about the NHS, Joseph? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, access to the health system and, you know, potential, you know, access for American companies there uh, and, and drug pricing, which are issues that, you know, sort of thwarted uh, EU-US deal. And now the British government, instead of kind of getting out of the shadow of Brussels and saying, okay, we have an opportunity to be sensible about food safety regulation. Instead, we're talking about these danged chlorinated chickens all the time. Oh no! <laughs> and you know this. This stuff also really matters because I think you know. For, again, if you're talking about something like a UK-US trade deal, partly because of that, uh, you know, agricultural issue, and partly for other reasons, I think people need to be realistic about what these trade deals are going to look like. Um, I mean, in addition to agriculture, the big issue for both sides in the UK-US deal is, uh, you know. It's also going to be financial services and some of the issues that you have to work around to do with the way the regulation in the two countries has diverged since the financial crisis. 
Well, I mean, that is the potential constraint on your ability to cover a really important industry for both countries in a bilateral trade deal. That is not going to get easier if uh, Biden wins and the Democratic Senate takes over so that you have Elizabeth Warren continuing to write financial regulation in the U.S. Um, and I think that Britain would need to be prepared for what it's going to do about its economy if the trade deals that it does negotiate are not um, as high quality as they might have hoped for. Yeah, I think this is a broader issue with other trade deal negotiations that I've been hearing about, which is the extent to which, although at the political level, uh, there's a lot of talk about the ambition, at the more technical negotiating level, there's often signs from the British side that they're not necessarily as open to the kind of comprehensive deals that would be the most beneficial across areas, particularly like agriculture and, and financial services. Um, and the UK is, is perhaps for good reasons, but I would argue probably not particularly in as required being excessively protectionist of, of those sectors. Um, but I think I'm just going to want to move on to one last topic in today's discussion. The Deputy Governor of the Bank of England has written a letter to banks asking them about their technological readiness for negative interest rates. Um, This comes after other discussions in the bank, um, including from the Monetary Policy Committee, about their potential. Um, And it's amongst quite an extraordinary time for monetary policy in terms of its role in quantitative easing and expanding lines of credit to governments and just their general stimulatory role during the crisis. Uh, Joseph, this is your area of specialty, very much monetary policy. I was wondering if you could just get back to basics. What would negative interest rates actually mean? What would they do? And and will that kind of, do you think that has a flowing through effect to depositors? Are we going to be having to pay money to put our money into the bank pretty soon? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've basically put your finger on it. The concept behind a negative interest rate is that it becomes a form of uh, tax on savings. I mean, no one will quite talk about that, not least because no one ever you know, voted to give central banks the authority to impose taxes. Uh, but that's basically what it is. I mean, the concept is that if you have a balance at the central bank, as uh, large financial institutions do, um, you know, above a certain level of that balance, or maybe just for all of it, um, they will, t- you know, take a cut out of it instead of paying you interest as they, they normally would. And, you know, the purpose of this is that they want to encourage uh, financial institutions to get that money out of cash reserves and into lending to the economy. Um I mean, there's the what I find interesting about this is, first off, there's very little that we know about how these things actually work uh, in practice. I mean, the biggest experiments in this kind of policy have been in Japan and the European Central Bank, and then some smaller uh, you know, economies like Switzerland also have imposed negative rates uh, at various times. And I mean, so far, the evidence is that there's limited uh, pass through to retail savers. So, you know, individual people listening to this podcast don't necessarily need to worry that their bank would start taking a direct cut, uh, which would be marked on your statement as the negative interest rate, um, you know, if the Bank of England imposes this policy. But I mean, one of the things that's becoming clear and that I think that in general, we don't talk enough about when we talk about uh, any sort of monetary policy is that a lot of it really depends on the structure of your financial system. How, what is your bank's business model, how do they 
acquire funding? Uh, how do they try to earn their profits? Uh, and what effect will various forms of monetary policy have on that? Um, so we kind of know how this works in Eurozone banks that tend to rely more heavily on fee income from uh, you know, retail savers. Uh, you know, we kind of know how this works in a system like Japan, where you have a relatively closed financial system. No one has tried it yet in an economy like the UK, where um, you know, banks might be, uh, in general, somewhat more dependent on a model of taking in deposits uh, you know, from retail savers to whom they are offering free banking services. Um, I'm not necessarily sure if I were Andrew Bailey, I would be keen to find out how this kind of policy would interact with the British financial system. Uh, but I, I mean, it, it is basically a big experiment. And and a fascinating experiment will be, I think the, we also have to uh, start having to think about the broader questions about just what are the economic impacts of expansionary monetary policy. And I think, I think there's good debates to be had and, and you can make an argument to say, well, at the height of the crisis, we, we did need some very expansionary monetary policy. It would have been disastrous if the Bank of England hadn't stepped in, particularly when the government needed to borrow a lot of money to ensure the interest rates were kept low. But are we potentially setting ourselves up uh, for a bit of an, an economic trap here, so, um, be it kind of a debt trap more directly or some potential longer-term impacts on the economy. We're starting to see a lot of talk about the kind of zombie company phenomenon and just what uh, having a lot of money flowing around the economy does to our productivity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the big problem that you have to think about in this kind of discussion is that productivity and that longer-term issue. And this is not really something that's banks um, in general, I, I think I don't think they've thought enough about. Um, because, I mean, you're absolutely right. If you're in the depth of a crisis like we were at the height of the financial crisis in 2008, or as we were in uh, you know, February and March this year when the pandemic was just setting in, that we were going through all of the lockdowns, there was a lot of chaos and uncertainty in the markets. I, no one is suggesting that central banks should not respond to that. Um, and in fact, I think that the policy response to both of those events seems to have been pretty successful because you um, you know, have not had this phenomenon where the financial system has managed to blow itself up and then you know, blow up the rest of the economy with it. But then you start shifting into this longer term phase where you're thinking, well, okay, we have this situation which is dragging on for a long time. We need to find some new normal and that uh, involves uh, thousands and thousands of individual investors and company managers trying to make decisions about feeling their way forward. And you need some kind of uh, you know, accurate price of capital as you do that. And yet we are in this situation where I think that um, we lean more and more on the central banks to offer credit subsidies as a form to you know, sort of ease those adjustments, but it actually prevents you from making that kind of adjustment. And I think that we need to be really worried about that kind of trap. I think that instead of saying that the solution to the pandemic is to do negative interest rates, which would probably come about a year after the pandemic started, uh, you know, the Bank of England should be thinking, well, how do we normalize policy so that the economy can normalize itself? So when it comes to negative interest rates, I'd like to think about it on both a personal aspect and also the, the broader ramifications. And from a personal aspect, I'd 
quite like the idea of uh, hoping to get a house soon and having a potentially negative interest rate mortgage, as I think <laughs> that one Danish bank has, has actually started to offer. On the other hand, I also bank with one of the challenger banks that have kind of improved banking competition in the UK recently. And if you look at your your Monzos, your Revoluts, your Starling banks, etc., negative interest rates can be a pretty concerning scenario for them in that they don't tend to be lending quite as much as the more established banks. So they haven't got loan books that are large enough to really offset the costs of what they're going to have to pay if negative interest rates come around to them. Um, so I'm a bit concerned on that aspect as well. Um, but broadly, in relation to the ongoing pandemic, I think there's also a question about whether uh, central banks' objective should be to successfully or not attempt to stimulate the economy through uh, spending and, and increased investment. On the one hand, obviously, you want to make uh, lending as easy as possible in order to help out some of the businesses that are particularly struggling to remain open as a result of things like lockdown restrictions and uh, reduced demand. But on the other hand, do you really want to be incentivizing people to go out and spend more out of their current accounts than they would otherwise be doing um, and you know, potentially uh, increasing the, the infection rate for coronavirus. So I think it's, it's not a particularly clear-cut thing whether this is even a, a good idea. Well, I, I actually want to push back on one thing that you said in there, which is this notion that you can kind of understand how, um, as a central bank, you want to facilitate lending to companies that are struggling with uh, you know, these lockdown restrictions. No, you don't want to do that. Um, because the solution to those companies is to not have the lockdown restrictions. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, we're having this conversation because um, policymakers are trying to lean on Andrew Bailey and Christine Lagarde and Jake Powell in the, the U.S. and um, you know Kuroda in, in, in Japan. You know, policymakers are trying to lean on the central bankers to. Um, cover for the fact that the policymakers do not have a good plan for the economy in the time of the coronavirus. I, I mean, I think that we're at the point where, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, partial or quasi or multi-tiered lockdown policies are not necessarily a sensible policy approach to the situ medical situation of the pandemic, and they're having all of these economic consequences. And, you know, if you have had pandemic policies that are killing your economy, the solution is to come up with some kind of pandemic approach that's not going to kill the economy. It isn't to, um, you know, roll out all of these distorting credit subsidies. That isn't really solving anything. Just, just um, putting aside for one moment the particular questions about the COVID response, I think that's a whole other debate that I don't necessarily want to get into right now. Um, I think I'd say that there's probably, to some extent, there was a need to provide um, relatively cheap lines of credit to a lot of businesses that, let's just say, putting aside the current policies, um, it did feel like there was some need for lockdown earlier in the year and you needed some need for a government response to that lockdown. And if the businesses are going to be struggling, you should allow them to borrow so that they can sustain themselves through that lockdown period. You might say it should be much shorter, Joseph, or that you know, we need to stop doing all these things right away. Whatever that answer may be, it does, it does include to me that some businesses that were sustainable wasn't necessarily a bad thing to give them a line of credit. Where I think the problem comes in is that we don't actually know in advance um, which businesses are worthwhile ventures, are sustainable in the longer run, um, aren't just surviving because of cheap credit. 
and which ones are would survive post-pandemic and just needed a bit of money to get them through. I think the longer-term danger is, is, and this has kind of happened after every previous um, recession in, in the last 20 years, is this increasing kind of zombie company phenomenon. Now, a zombie company is I think, typically defined as a company that is basically not in itself profitable, but it survives year on year um, because it, it's able to keep borrowing more money at lower interest rates. And that kind of keeps them alive. And then that, that has some broader economic impacts, as you were kind of getting to earlier, Joseph, which is you have all these companies that are surviving, um, particularly bigger companies that are surviving and, and not failing, like you would need to in a kind of um, productive economy to open up new opportunities. But also in, in industries with lots of zombie companies, um, you have fewer new company startups, you have lower productivity. Um, it, it kind of just poisons the capital structure in, in the economy and, and poisons uh, which businesses and which ventures are, are sustainable in the long run and therefore kind of undermines the, your broader economic um, prosperity. And that's what we've seen uh, potentially in Japan over recent decades, which is a lot of cheap credit, but not particularly productive economy and not particularly rising living standards, a kind of stagnant economy for plenty of other reasons as well, no doubt, but um, zombie companies having an effect. And what worries me the most is that we're going to have this kind of zombie company phenomenon, putting aside a particular COVID m- moment, we're going to have this kind of hanging around for a long time. And you combine that in with the fact that no central um, bank governor will have the guts to start increasing interest rates because the government has so much debt. And if they increase interest rates, the cost of government borrowing will inevitably go up. And that that could um, effectively bankrupt the ability of the, the government uh, to provide public services and would, would necessitate some, some austerity. So no one's willing to pull the plug on this. So we're kind of trapped in a situation where um, we're creating all these zombie companies. Uh, we've got very low interest rates, excessively low potentially in, in going forward and, and is causing this phenomenon. But we can't seem to get out of it because if we try to get out of it, we try to increase interest rates, a lot of these companies will fail. That'll cause a lot of um, disharmony and, and economic pain, as well as just the, the impact on government services, particularly in the context of a government that doesn't seem to have any interest whatsoever in, in cutting spending. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and look, I mean, I, I want to be absolutely clear here that I'm not going to fault central banks for uh, decisions that they made to try to get the economy over what at the time in the spring we thought was going to be a relatively short, um, you know, sort of hump that we had to get over in terms of the lockdowns. And I, I think that, you know, in that kind of situation where it's a completely out of left field event and you think that it's going to be very short lived and then after it's over, you know, things will be able to go back very quickly to the way they were. Um, you know, I'm sympathetic to an argument that maybe that is a situation where you want to um, you know, slash interest rates and encourage some emergency lending for a bit just to get past that point. But I think that, you know, the difficulty is that, you know, whether you're talking about the uh, policy response to the pandemic or any of these economic issues, I think that we're kind of out of the emergency stage of this now. We are into the learning to have some kind of uh, economy and some kind of public health response that is sustainable over the longer term. And in that kind of environment, I think that this game that you're playing, playing of just trying to kick things down the, you know, kick the can down the road as much as possible uh, for as long as possible is not necessarily a good answer because, um, you know, you will, you know, a consequence of this does seem to be that consumers are going to change their behavior. Maybe we're shopping more online instead of going into stores. Well, I mean, then that raises questions about how many department store chains should you have? 
Um, you know, is this how hard should we be struggling to keep some companies open if their business model is no longer going to make sense in light of the way that we think that the pandemic is changing consumer behavior? And, you know, that's kind of a normal process that goes on all of the time for any number of reasons that, you know, consumer behaviors can change sometimes very quickly. Uh, and the economy needs to adjust to that. And the solution is usually that investors can figure it out if they have some kind of you know, cost of capital orienting the entire economy that's rooted in some version of reality. Um, and so what I worry is that we're kind of, we lose our ability to allow the market to make that kind of adjustment if your, uh, your monetary and other policies are trying to stack the deck in favor of keeping the status quo ante. I guess my concern here is that we might not be completely out of that emergency stage where we have consumer behavior temporarily uh, or sorry, permanently adjusting. I mean, taking kind of the retail stores versus online as an example, I'm perhaps not as confident as you, Joe, that people's consumer habits have changed in a more permanent way towards, you know, shopping on Amazon rather than going to a local department store or whether that is still because people are, are significantly adjusting behave, their behavior in light of what is hopefully going to be a temporary pandemic. Well, no, I mean, look, that's that's true. And I mean, it's worth re remembering that one of the reasons that you have to also ask that kind of question for some of these industries is because I think that bad um, you know, economic policies before the pandemic had actually made it difficult for some of these companies to uh, you know, make the investments that they needed to do to make these transitions. So, I mean, we've very had, true. you know, some of these very indebted department stores that are basically, you know, really struggling or going out of business right now. Um, and they're all blaming the pandemic. But the big problem is that even before the pandemic, they were, you know, wildly underinvesting in core pieces of their business that they ought to have been um, you know, investing in long before. Um, and, you know, I think that part of that is because the general policy environment, including the very low interest rate monetary policy environment, freed them of the burden of doing that. I mean, look, I shop on Amazon a lot. One of the reasons is, have you ever tried to buy anything online from some of these UK retailers? Uh, I mean, I've had some miserable experiences trying to buy, you know, engage in e-commerce with some of the department stores here. Uh, and it's the same with a lot of these department stores in the U.S. that have uh, gone under in the, ostensibly because of the pandemic. Uh, but really, it's because they had not had the right incentives in place to be push it, forcing them to invest in these key parts of their business that would have been an issue even without the coronavirus. Yeah, I think at absolute best, you could um, spin the pandemic as as pushing some companies necessarily out of business, but it's going to come with a lot of pain. I think governments are going to be very wary about letting too many companies fail, and, and you can end up in a circular position where the government is both directly uh, trying to bail out certain businesses, as this government's already done uh, with, uh, I think it's Tata Steel, and then on top of that, um, a monetary policy setting that is acts as an effective ongoing bailout to low productivity companies. Uh, yes, and I, look, I am absolutely sympathetic to the political dynamic that goes on here, and you know, I'm, you know, I, I am realistic about the prospects that um, you know any of this is going to change uh, imminently. Um, I, I think the bigger lesson that you have to draw is that the longer 
you allow this kind of bad policy situation to persist, the more distortions build up in your economy and the more painful the end is when it comes. Um, So, you know, I, I think that some of these business disruptions that you saw either before the pandemic when you had all of these ructions going through the casual dining industry here in the UK, um, or, you know, what goes on with the department stores or some of these other companies now that we've had the pandemic, a lot of that is more painful because they had set down this path and they were kind of pushed or encouraged down this path by these bad policy settings. And then you end up with this path dependence where you just make one bad decision after another, after another. Uh, and then by the time you come, you know, everyone comes to their senses, the consequences are terrible. Uh, so I don't know, I don't think there is going to be a good political solution to that right now. Um, but I think that that is an argument for, you know, when you do face a decision point on something like the, the negative interest rates that we started this discussion with, uh, for thinking, well, I mean, is this now going to create another situation where we'll go even further down this path and then it will be even harder for us to come back from it uh, down the other side? Well, let's hope we can get off the road to serfdom pretty soon and uh, some of our policymakers who are listening to this podcast will start at least thinking about the, the potential downside risks that come with an excessively expansionist monetary policy. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Pink Factory from the Adam Smith Institute. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Joseph Sternberg from The Wall Street Journal as our special guest, as well as my co-host Daniel Pryor from the Adam Smith Institute. My name is Matthew Lesh and... Thank you once again for joining. Please do subscribe to The Pin Factory in your chosen podcast provider. And we look forward to returning to you next week for another episode. 